for listening to Michael Cohen and Ben Marcellus. Midas Touch. This is Verdict, Verdict Watch in Giuliani case and Diaper Don's Hope of Delay is Crushed. Three or four dimensional chest looks like, and it's with President Biden. If you take a look at the average barrels per day of oil production right here, United States, Russian, and Saudi oil production, what you can basically see right here is what Russia and Saudi Arabia are trying to do to cause chaos and havoc and artificially suppress or they're just not doing a good job with oil production in general. But I think a lot of it is trying to limit the supply to try to create really high prices and create discord here. But look at what President Biden has been able to achieve during that time period, greatly exceeding their oil production at the kind of time period where they were starting to tank uh, their supply right there. And so you have the United States at 13.1 million barrels, by the way, if you were to compare parks like that, all of the metrics that are important to compare the United States to the rest of the world, the United States is number one in every good category, yet the Republicans want to gaslight us and say, you know who we should really love? Victor Orban in Hungary with that 20% inflation and his overall GDP was like $180 billion, which is what Victor Orban, the most powerful, you know, he's a well-respected Victor Orban. Maybe, maybe you've heard of him, Victor Orban? Hey, you know, he's one tough cookie. And you sit there, and you say to yourself, I can't believe that there are legitimately Americans that aren't pissing themselves. When you listen to Trump speak about Orban, about Kim Jong-un, about about Putin, I mean, you say to yourself, hey, okay, stupid is stupid. I get that. I really do. I get it. There are people that just, they're stupid. This guy will tell you how smart he is tell you that he finished at the top of his class at Wharton, which we know is not true, because that you don't need to get records from the school. They listed out who was magna cum laude, summa cum laude, cum laude, uh, in the Wharton class the year that he graduated. He ain't on it. But he'll tell you that he finished first in his class. All right? Just another lie right there. When you start to praise the dictator, when you start to praise somebody who is anti-democratic, do you think that that should work here in the United States of America? Ben, i got to tell you, if this isn't the call for you and I to once again repeat all our brigaders, make sure that you are registered to vote. You know, I was over at Bloomingdale's today. I went, you know, they have great ice, they have great yogurt that's over there at a place called 40 Carrots. So I went with my wife over there. You know, I was hungry and I don't really want to eat anything, so we had a very light lunch. I went and I had 40 carats um, yogurt. And I'm talking to these ladies that work in the candle section. You have to walk through that in order to get to the restaurant. And we were bullshitting about Trump and so on. And I said, do you mind if I ask the three of you a quick question? They're like, no, of course. What is it? I said, you're registered to vote? And two of the three claimed that they were registered to vote. The third one said... 
not yet. And so I turned around and I said, bring out your cell phone. Let's do it right now. And she did. That's what each and every one of us needs to do. We need to ensure that people are registered to vote, that they are prepared to vote. And I don't care whether it's ballot or it's going to be a mail-in. It makes no difference. It is your and mine and all of our responsibility to ensure that all of our family, all of our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, people like these three women at Bloomingdale are registered to vote because only through them and only through our actions will we ensure that this guy never gets even close ever seeing the inside of the White House again, and that includes an open public forum. He should never be allowed anywhere near the White House ever again. Shouldn't be allowed on the ballot. Stats on Hungary, Donald Trump continues to praise. It's a country of 9.71 million people, so it's smaller than L.A. County, and its annual GDP is less than the annual revenue of dozens of American companies, yet that is what Donald Trump is praising and the MAGA Republicans praise as a beacon of success. It is horrifying. Let me just show you some of these clips of Trump in Iowa. Michael Cohen, I'm going to show you a few and then get your reactions. Let me just go through a few of them here. Donald Trump talks about an issue which is very important to the people of Iowa and across the country, which is his golf game. <laughs> and it's a very minor thing, but I'm a much better golfer than I was 10 or 15 years ago. It means something. You know, it means something in a certain way. It means something. Or it doesn't mean anything oh, here. It means that you can't afford diapers for your child. You can't make your electric bill payment. You can't afford rent, or you can't afford to send your kids to school, or whatever it might be. That's that's negated. Yep. Because this golf game is just getting so much better. <laughs> Thank God the King's golf game is great. All hail the King. It's exactly, by the way, if you think about it, like Marie Antoinette's famous line, let them eat cake. Here, demonstrating some serious cognitive decline, Donald Trump says one of the key things under his leadership was a rebirth in loyalty to the flag, he says. And he says, do you remember what I did with those NFL players? He says, these NFL players, they had a sitting problem. They were sitting. Do you remember that? I think he's referring to when players took a knee, by the way, I was representing Colin Kaepernick, who was Colin's lawyer, uh, at that time when Donald Trump said, get the SOB off the field. But Donald Trump believes that the issue was a, a sitting problem. They were sitting. Play the clip. So under my leadership, we have a great rebirth of loyalty to the American farmer and to the American flag because we've lost a lot of loyalty. Remember what I did with the NFL when they had a little bit of a uh, sit-down problem? And uh, they were sitting down. We didn't like that. Thanks to big people like you, Arizonans in need won't. They were sitting down and we didn't like it. Here he is on the verge of slurring his words, bragging about becoming.
cognitive exam he took for his <laughs> Be happy to hear. Our great football player is going to be happy to hear this. I took a physical and I passed with flying colors. And I took a cognitive exam. <laughs> I said, doctor, give me anything you want. I want to take. <laughs> give me anything you want. Give me anything you want. You know what he truly reminds me of? He reminds me of that book, uh, movie. What is it, the, uh, the candidate, something like that? Farmers and people who don't lay down on the field on the backbone of America. I mean, it's that stupid what he's saying. The fact that people aren't laughing at him. The fact that he is right now leading this group of GOP fools. I just <laughs> The fact that you can have members of Congress, people who... They bunch have of fucking traitors. Something. They managed to bamboozle right, people from their communities into thinking that they care about them and their problems more than they care about kissing Donald's ass. But they don't. And yet, they still vote for these people and they still are interested in voting for Donald Trump. I mean, let me be very clear. That's not who America is. That's not what we want for America. This is when we listen to this sort of rambling of a lunatic mind, we need to be scared. As I said on television the other day, um, be afraid. Be very afraid. And I don't want this show to be a doom and gloom type of show. What I want it to be together. We are going to beat this shit down. And we are going to win, not just Congress, because now you may have heard uh, that they are going to be re uh, gerrymandering the gerrymander, uh, you know, in order to be more inclusive. Um, that'll be good for And we'll keep the Senate and we will take the White House. And then finally, stuff can get done. Instead of allowing when you have the split like we have now, you have a group of idiots that are trying to appease a man of one, a man who cares nothing for this country, but only cares about <laughs> specific case. I'm referring to the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. I want to get into the uh, impeachment inquiry frivolous impeachment inquiry in just a bit, but you know, one of the things I appreciate about President is that they stand on principles. And I think there was once upon a time where the Republican Party did as well. They stood on conservative principles or whatever they considered that to be. No, no more. There's nothing conservative about this at all. As I've said, I think I'm more conservative than them. I believe in serving our democracy and our institutions. But having a series of principles and living up to those principles and not wavering is something I appreciate about President Joe Biden. Call that old school, if you will, but I call that leadership. I want to show you this final clip from uh, Trump's speech. Here he is, again, like unwell, mixing up words and concepts, saying that 
special counsel Jack Smith, or as he says, they are trying to go to the Supreme Court to get a guilty plea about me. This makes absolutely no sense what he's saying. I think he's trying to say is that special counsel Jack Smith filed a petition with the United States Supreme Court directly to hear Trump's appeal on a direct petition, expediting it uh, even beyond the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, so it just goes directly to the Supreme Court. But he, here's what Trump says, play the clip. Waited and waited and waited, and then they saw I was running, and they waited, and then they saw I was hot, and they filed lawsuits. These are very dishonest people. That's called election interference. These are very, and now they're fighting like hell because they want to try and get a guilty plea from the Supreme Court of the United States, which I can't imagine because you have presidential immunity. But strange things happen, but they want to get that because that's the only way they're going to win the election. It's a very sick thing. But, but play this clip, too. This is Alina Haba right here. She gave an interview where she said she wants the Supreme Court to get involved. And I believe uh, someone had called on on the Supreme Court to do this exact thing. We need the Supreme Court to step in and stop this. This has become complete mayhem. Mm. And if they don't start looking at these decisions and as the highest court in this country, as the arbiter of law, the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution, the people that are supposed to enforce our bedrock, if they don't start doing it, which thank goodness they are, we, you know, have some law and order hopefully soon. Well, people. Cohen, she doesn't know the Blassingame case. She's telling the Supreme Court to intervene right now and get involved. Donald Trump is saying that he doesn't want the Supreme Court to get involved. But here's the thing. Special counsel Jack Smith has filed a petition for certiorari directly with the Supreme Court to hear the issue of absolute immunity. So, Alina Hoppe, I assume, I'm being sarcastic here, but based on what you said, you and Donald Trump would stipulate to have the Supreme Court hear the issue on an expedited basis right now. But Cohen, you and I both know that when December 20th comes around and Donald Trump submits his brief, he's gonna say this should not go before the Supreme Court, they should not adjudicate this right now, more delay, delay, delay. And it's just that constant gaslighting. It is a barrage of lies talking about. That's the whole thing, if we go back and we replay Trump's statement. His statement contradicts the statement that preceded it. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because, first of all, that's not what the Supreme Court is going to do here. They, it's What they're going to do is they're going to make a decision on the question of whether or not presidential immunity for, the, for this specific act is covered. Know, based upon uh, the Presidential Immunity Act. And his understanding of even what the issue is, is so lacking that it's, again, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer to understand that he has no idea what he's babbling about. It's just babble. And it's this psycho babble that's circular. It just goes round and round. But you know, crazy <laughs> things have happened. Right. So he's already setting it up that when he loses, he knows that he will lose the case. He will lose the argument, especially if Alina Haba is going to be is going to be uh, representing him before the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, talk about funny as hell. I'm just sitting 
looking at it and I'm saying to myself, what the hell are they talking about? What is, you know, first of all, forget about the fact that they contradict each other continuously. And that's not really her fault because he contradicts everybody. He'll change his position regardless of um, you know, who's representing him and what the case is about. He's constantly flip-flopping on everything. But he's already setting it up that When they lose the argument, oh, I told you, I told you, you see, you can't be wrong if you say yes and no to the same question. He's got it covered. And that's really what Donald, that's the, that's really, I hate to say it, the brilliance of Donald's bullshit and Lena Haba. You know, there's an expression I remember from like grade school. You can't dazzle them with your brilliance. You dazzle them with your bullshit. And that's what she does. She's got like five or six lines. And she just repeats all of the expert tapes. And let's talk about, you know, uh, U.S. versus Nixon. And so they're not applicable, you idiot. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. They're not applicable. So, Alina, because I know you watch this. In fact, she approached me today and at the uh, at the hearing, and she said, "Oh, you've been unusually active regarding me on your social media." And I heard, I looked at her and I said, "It's just starting. It, it's just the beginning." You know, I mean, this is this is so insane. They're talking about issues. She's referring to issues that she has no idea about. I mean, the fact that she didn't know about the blessing game versus Trump decision, and yet this is the expert on presidential immunity. I don't know. That's a that's a tough one for me. I mean, that's almost like you know. I mean, that's almost like mechanic not knowing how to fill up a gas tank. Let me play the moment where she was asked that question, and then I want to talk briefly about Giuliani and this impeachment inquiry, but let's play this clip of Alina Hubbard. Okay, um, are you familiar with Blessing Game versus Trump? Not off the top of my head. Okay, um, I'd just be, they, they got this issue before we did. Not off the top of my head. The main case that's uh, at issue here on presidential immunity that relates to your client in a case that you were involved in. <laughs> I mean, come on. I want to show you this book. I, I got to. I got to go to. Um, so, like Donald Trump said that he was going to testify at the New York Attorney General civil fraud case on direct examination. Giuliani said that he was going to testify in the defamation case brought by Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. Here's just one of those clips where Giuliani said that he would be testifying. Let's play this clip of Ruby. 
I was proven to be telling the truth, and they were proven to be liars. Once again, that will happen. Uh, when I testify, we'll get the whole story, and it will be definitively clear that what I said was true, and that whatever happened to them, which is it's unfortunate for other people overreacting, but everything I said about them is true. Do you? Okay, so that's Giuliani saying that he's going to testify. Here's him from another day at trial where he defames them again. Here, play this clip. Whatever happened to them, which is, it's unfortunate for other people overreact, but everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to... Of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Well, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. He goes, stay tuned. But then he goes, everything I said is true. <laughs> he does the same thing over and over again. Well, he didn't show up to testify. Surprise, surprise. And then uh, his lawyer basically had to argue in the closing that Giuliani's a, you know, an idiot and he's not a good person. But just remember the good things that he did around 9-11 is basically what the lawyer argued. The jury's been deliberating for about three and a half hours as of the time of this recording. Uh, they wanted to go home for the day. One of that, one of those hours was a lunch break. So they're going home. They're going to come back in the morning on Friday, and I expect there to be a large verdict there. Uh, and finally, Michael Cohen, I want to just talk about this impeachment uh, inquiry right here. Um, if you ask the MAGA Republicans what it is, what is the crime that was committed, they're unable to answer that. Never before in the history is there an impeachment inquiry just because. And even during that first hearing, uh, when there was the impeachment hearing without a formal inquiry vote, the experts that were brought in by the MAGA Republicans said that there was not enough evidence for uh, impeachment, and they all got humiliated, and then the MAGA Republicans refused to allow in any evidence. I, I just want to show you one of the scenes. Uh, during the time when the impeachment inquiry vote was taking place, it was all on party lines. All the Republicans, every single one of them, voted in favor of an impeachment inquiry. All of the Democrats voted against an impeachment uh, inquiry. I want to show you this part, though, where Marjorie Taylor Greene tries to butt into James Comer and Jim Jordan's press conference, and then they have to shut it down immediately because she's talking about, like, sex trafficking conspiracies, and it just goes sideways here. Mr. Chairman, that has been organized in emails that we that you guys leaked from Hunter Biden's laptop. I would like to have asked Hunter Biden about me and violations, sex trafficking women across the state. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. See you later. Jim Jordan, listen, I got to give Jim Jordan a little bit of credit on that one. I think Jim Ben is actually beginning to really see the light. I think he's really seeing what's going on inside. Uh, D.C. there, and while he has not, let's just say, gone to the same extent that someone like a Mitt Romney or Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger by far, I think what he did there is realizing that she's just batshit crazy, and all it's going to do is to put him further behind the ball for this fraudulent and vindictive 
that they started and that they voted on. It is an absolute disgrace to be using the power that you have been given. You don't own that power. You've been given that power by we, we the people. They take it, they abuse it, and in all fairness, it's basically meant to distract the American people from the crimes that Donald Trump, the 91 charge that he is being alleged to have committed, and to try to hurt him for the 2024 election, all at the direction of, for the benefit of, one man, the guy who wants to be king, Baltimore, man whose name shall not be mentioned. I want to thank everybody for watching this episode of Political Beatdown. I want to remind you that here at the Midas Touch Network, we are not funded by outside investors. The way we grow this thing is through our pro-democracy sponsors, those fun emojis you see at the bottom. But here, our Patreon.com slash Political Beatdown. We started off this week with a very special Zoom meeting where everybody got to meet Michael Cohen on our exclusive Zoom meeting. We answered all of the questions that were asked, patreon.com slash political beatdown. You can DM Michael Cohen on it. Uh, we post exclusive after show podcasts on patreon.com slash political beatdown. We're going to be doing an after show right now, and I want to talk more about Alina Haba and her inability to know what Blasting Game was and why that's well, not, so Well, nothing for nothing, because it is now around the time that we bring this political beat down to the hour-long end. I didn't give anybody the two-finger salute, but Alina, since you decided that yourself, that I have been unusually um, hard on you and that I have um, been somewhat overactive on my social media, uh, making statements about you and the things that you're doing. Um, I would, like Rudy Giuliani, like to say I'm sorry, but since, of course, I haven't done anything wrong, I do need to, of course, add to these um, so-called you know, representations to you and give you today the two-finger salute for being an idiot, for turning around and saying bullshit uh, to the court in regard to this case, to sitting there and going on your social media platforms, going uh, before different groups with Donald and deciding you want to talk about me uh, and so on. You know, as they like to say in Texas and so on, right? Don't get into the corral if you're afraid to get stuck by the ball. It's just that simple. So, Alina, seriously, fuck you. You're an idiot. It's time to turn around and do yourself and do Donald a favor. I know I shouldn't be giving Donald any advice, but the best advice is why don't you just go back and run the super PAC? I mean, that's probably what you're best at uh, because certainly your performance today before the Second Circuit that is any indication of your capabilities as a lawyer. Um, well, it's good for the rest of us. Let me say that. So, you know what? I take it all back. You should. I still don't take that back, but keep representing him. Because yeah, you're, doing, you're doing America a major, major service. Yeah, you're a true patriot. We should put up a statue in Central Park to 
be of service. Alina, you are a patriot. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep representing Donald Trump. Do not let anybody discourage you to leave the legal team. Just keep following briefs. Keep on waving uh, legal defenses. Just just keep it keep it going. Getting to file certain boxes for juries and so on. Get the press. Keep 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 on going. You and the Second Circuit recently held that she that she or Trump's lawyers waived the presidential immunity affirmative defense in the E. Jean Carroll case by not asserting it for three years. So look, just keep doing what you're doing. Right. Go to those wacko rallies that Trump holds, and you you could run around on stage and claim that you're winning the cases. What whatever you want to do, stay. <laughs> I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Cohen. Thank you all for watching. We're going to do our after show on patreon.com slash political beatdown. Thank you all so much. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. <laughs> Don't let anybody discourage you. What she is doing. She is doing everyone a favor. Staying on that legal team. Verdict watch in Giuliani case and diapered on top of delays crashed. This is what their voters want. This is unprecedented in American history to launch. Um, by the way, keep in mind that these mofos need, should be behind bars, not in Congress. Okay. Let's see what else my touch has got going on. Diaperdon's NFT website explicitly encourages foreign investors to purchase access. What a crook. <clears throat> Head up Fox host drops a hammer on MAGA impeachment jam leaves co-host speechless. Um, 
appeals court moves quick on Trump. He loses big. Brutal end for them is near. Deberdon loses in court at 6 p.m. Another half an hour or so. An A app that creates deep fake nudes of women for the purpose of blackmail. Currently advertising to users on X, formerly Twitter. Undress any girl using AI, yo, mar, Marina, and Russian. Sleeper criminal case against Trump. Take center stage after federal ruling three hours ago. I know it's fun. late, but uh, happy anniversary. Mm, I'm so tired. Mood can help you both get in. The, the people are ready, Your Honor. Those are words that the Manhattan DA's office is gearing up to say on March 24th in the Donald Trump election interference case where he paid a porn star, Stormy Daniels, through his lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, and then lied about it didn't declare it on his campaign finances and grossed up wages so that he and Michael Cohen could commit tax fraud and Michael Cohen wouldn't be able to, wouldn't have to claim it or could claim it as income, but would have more money uh, than he was owed. So it would come out as a wash and lied about it in business records. That is the case that is going to be going March 24th. Why do I think that case is going March 24th? Because Judge Tanya Chutkin stayed her case. And whether or not the case is going to be going in March 4th now is a grave concern. And it might not happen. Donald Trump wants to delay. That's what his tactic is here so that he doesn't have to face the music. He doesn't want to have to go to trial, so he delays, delays, and delays. And he's made a presidential immunity claim, which we've been reporting about, and reporting that this is a big deal. It's not frivolous. And why is that? Exactly for this reason. Because now Judge Chutkin has no choice but to press pause until the appeal of that case and of the presidential immunity issue is resolved. And that is because if he is immune, there's no trial. If he's not oh immune, there is a trial. It's one of those foundational questions that determines whether or not there will be a trial. And so the law is pretty clear here that in a case like that, when it's something that is so foundational, that is that would absolutely um, be outcome determinative, or uh, in this case, whether there be burdens of litigation on the defendant, which there would be if it continued, right? Jack Smith has been filing all sorts of motions. He filed a SEPA Section 6 motion today. He wants to keep going with the proceedings. But Judge Chutkin said she had no other choice but to stop and stop the trial uh, until this is decided. Now, two things have to happen. Um, either the D.C. Circuit, well, Jack Smith anticipated this was going to happen. So even before Judge Chutkin stayed the proceedings today, Jack Smith filed in a notice of appeal and a writ uh, of certiorari before judgment 
to the United States Supreme Court, which basically means um, Supreme Court, can we skip a step and go straight to you and have you hear this presidential immunity question? Because if it doesn't go now, it's never gonna go. Why is it never gonna go? Because what will happen? Stormy Daniels case is going, right? That's how I started this, because that is exactly what will happen. If it doesn't go March 4th, a couple weeks later, Judge Juan Mershon is gonna see that the calendar is clear and the people will answer ready and that will go to trial and that will take some time. And then it's going to bump into the Mar-a-Lago documents case and then the election. And then if the election happens and Donald Trump wins the nomination and wins the election, then what happens next? Anything is your guess, right? He could be like um, like Joe Biden is and not necessarily pardon his son or dismiss the case against his son. No, Joe Biden kept in a David Weiss, who is a Trump prosecutor, right? Trump appointed him to the United States Attorney's Office, made him special counsel, and what happened? This sweeping, scathing indictment against Hunter Biden with felonies and misdemeanors of tax fraud. And then there's uh, a, another gun possession case as well. Do you think Trump's gonna do that? Is he gonna, is he gonna appoint a special prosecutor to prosecute himself? A, he's not gonna do that. And B, you can't prosecute a sitting president. The Office of Legal Counsel of the De of Department of Justice has said, you cannot prosecute a sitting president. So what will happen? It'll either be held in abeyance until after he serves, or more likely what will happen is whoever the attorney general is that Trump appoints could dismiss the case. Trump could pardon himself. You just don't know. But the case, if Trump wins, is not going if it doesn't go March 4th. Those are the stakes that are on the line, period, full stop. And today it's just one more nail in that coffin with Tanya Chutkin having no choice but to have to pause the proceedings and pause all of any more pretrial work that would have to be done, including the juries, you know, the sending out jury notices and jury questionnaires, all of that's paused while this gets litigated in the Supreme Court. Now, Jack Smith is also hedging his bets, and he filed a motion with the D.C. Circuit, the interim court, to hopefully, uh, just in case the Supreme Court decides not to take it, he's, he's sort of doing both at the same time, and he's asking both to expedite and to go fast. If you're going to please take it and take it quickly. Now, the Supreme Court has agreed to take it quickly, meaning we will consider whether we are taking it quickly. And so December 20th is the date that um, Donald Trump has to file his response, not to the writ, meaning the writ is like, it's called a writ of certiorari, which is a request to the Supreme Court to take a case. And normally a request like that or a writ like that could take years, right? And what Jack Smith wants is this to happen quickly. So his first request is, will you decide whether or not to take the case quickly? And what they said is, yes, we will decide quickly. And so they gave Trump until December 20th to respond to the, is it okay? Or what is your position, Trump, on whether or not we should take this quickly? Now, of course, he'll say, no, don't do it quickly. But either way, I think they will take it quickly. And then they will decide on whether uh, or not there's presidential immunity, right? And so um, hopefully they'll do it really fast, like they did in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, like they've done 
in other cases as well. And we will still have our March 4th trial, but it's now December. So whether or not they will do all of this in three months is up for anyone's guess. Um, Judge Chutkin had two limits on her order, on her staying order. So number one, uh, the stay deadlines and proceedings are held in abeyance uh, rather than permanently vacated, meaning that if and when the case comes back to her, uh, she will then decide whether to retain or continue the dates of any uh, future deadlines, including the March 4th trial. So in other words, she's not saying all everything she had there um, like deadlines for motions, deadlines for other things, and the trial, she's basically saying it's not permanently vacated, it's just on pause, which I think is important. And I think Jack Smith knew this was coming, which is why he's been furiously filing all sorts of motions uh, in the case this week. But it also, number two, she says, this does not divest the court of jurisdiction to enforce measures such as the protective orders on discovery, the gag order, and the protective jury procedures. And she said, these items don't add any additional burden of litigation beyond those Trump already carries. And if a criminal defendant could bypass those critical safeguards merely by asserting immunity and then appealing them, they could irreparably harm any future proceedings. What is she saying there? She's basically saying, it, of course, my gag order still stands, and of course, the discovery protective order still stands. Otherwise, any criminal defendant, all they would have to do is just say, oh, you know, I'm immune, and, you know, and even if it's frivolous, and then appeal it, and at that point could just release everything, right? Release all the discovery, all the witness statements, say whatever they want. And she's basically saying, no, the law doesn't allow that just any future proceedings in law until all of these things are decided because it's outcome determinative. So I'm sure the Manhattan DA's office is seeing this just like we are. And I'm sure they were already gearing up and preparing uh, for trial as well, but now more than ever, and again, this is not based on inside information. This is just to work there, and I know how they are. Um, I know that they would be, they are absolutely gearing up. And so for those people who said, oh, that's not an important case, the Stormy Daniels case, why that case? Why did that come? This case might be the most single most important case of all because it has the best chance of going forward at this point. That case right now is absolutely one that he could be held accountable. Bonnie Willis in Georgia, she already said she asked for August, and so I, that's not going to happen for Trump because the election is in November. And um, and the Mar-a-Lago documents case, he won the lotto when he got Judge Eileen Cannon. You know, she's been giving, she, there's no way she's going to have that case go in May. She's already indicated and signaled through all her various delays and rulings that that's not a realistic date, even though she hasn't said it outright it's clear by reading the tea leaves what she has in mind and judge chutkin who was going to do this trial come hell or high water march 4th potentially her hands are tied now it's not 100 percent not going it is it potentially if ever if the supreme court does this quickly then this could go right back on track but now that we have a supreme court with um with you know 
these individuals, these judges, these justices, many of which appointed by Trump, who have been rolling back the norms and rolling back the laws and ruling in ways that honestly, I can't even predict anymore what they would do just because uh, they're, they're really doing things um, in ways that are against tradition and against uh, how the Supreme Court always operated. But we'll see. We'll see what they do here. But the Stormy Daniels case is turn, is going to turn out to be one of the single most important cases because it, it might actually hold Trump accountable. But we'll see. Um, we'll see what goes and what happens. But stay tuned and uh, stay informed. I'm Karen Friedman at Nicola. Join me and my co-hosts. Ben Mizellis and Michael Popak every Wednesday and Saturday on Legal AF. Thanks so much for watching. We're only a few subscribers short of 2 million subs. Please subscribe right now to the Midas Touch YouTube channel for free and help us grow this unapologetically pro-democracy network. Do not invest in another company until you hear about America's number one retirement stock. Look at this one. Yeah. You see? The mysterious company behind this stock camouflaged its huge factory of 53,000. Uh, <clears throat> Ooh, that sounds good. Infographic show. 50 insane declassified FBI. The archives are open. In its history of over 100 Secret years, the FBI know. has classified many documents. Until now. Now these government secrets are open for anyone to see. Here are 50 of the most insane declassified secrets of the FBI, including details on one of America's most mysterious residents. Number 50. Alive or dead? In the aftermath of World War II, the entire world celebrated the death of the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. But despite the confirmation that his life had ended in a Berlin bunker, as the Allied troops marched in, rumors started to spread. Did Hitler actually escape like so many of his Nazi allies? Maybe to South America? Did he shave his mustache and go undercover as an everyday suburban man? As one ill-advised sitcom imagined? The rumors persisted enough that in the months after the war, the FBI investigated evidence of his survival. And the declassified documents showed, nope, he's dead. It wasn't the only FBI investigation related to the war. Number 49, the wife, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the brilliant physicist heavily responsible for the United States winning the race to the atom bomb, was largely trusted by the U.S. government, despite some past leftist ties. But he was also married, and the FBI had some doubts about her. A trained biologist, she worked for the government at Los Alamos to help determine to radiation. The FBI was more concerned with her early life when she'd been involved with communist activist Joseph L.A. Jr. and joined the Communist Party. This led to her being investigated by agents about her current ties and to her husband's clearance being reduced. But many FBI investigations during the era were much more wide-reaching. Number 48. Detention. Even before President Roosevelt's infamous executive order that led to the imprisonment of the United States Japanese-American population, the government was hard at work arresting people. During the war, anyone deemed a security threat could be rounded up and detained by the government during the national state of emergency. And it centered on three groups, Japanese Americans, German Americans, and Italian Americans. All were arrested with little room for appeal, and the FBI kept an exhaustive list of the numbers. But being investigated by the FBI isn't always a negative. Number 47, the money man. It's rare for someone to play a key role in the home front for two world wars, but Bernard Barrick wasn't an ordinary man. 
The stock market magnate was chairman of the War Industries Board under Woodrow Wilson and advised President Roosevelt on industry and production decades later. When anyone is that close to the president, the FBI will want to take a look at him. Did they find any red flags on the man? Given that he was later appointed to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission by Harry Truman, it's likely a no. And in some cases, it's all about confirming what's already known. Number 46, Operation Paperclip. When the U.S. government decided to recruit former Nazis to help with the nuclear and space programs after the war, they knew they would need thorough background checks. After all, they were okay with some Nazis, but not the worst of the worst. The FBI was tasked into digging into wartime activities of these scientists and deciding if they were valuable and relatively clean enough to become Americans. Now on the FBI's websites, Americans can... websites, Americans can dig into the original reports of figures like Arthur Randolph and Werner von Braun. But sometimes the FBI was looking to prevent war before it happened. Number 45, flying solo. While the U.S. never went to war with the Soviet Union, paranoia was high about the communist nation infiltrating and sabotaging the Americans. That's why the FBI created Solo an intelligence effort that spanned two decades. It's placed agents within the Communist Party of the United States to discover if they were passing information to communist nations like the Soviet Union or China. The operation was largely headed by two agents, now declassified as Russian Jewish immigrants Morris and Jack Childs, whose background gave them the skills needed to infiltrate Russian communist enclaves. But not every espionage investigation is above board. Number 44, in the bag. How do you get a search warrant when the subject of the investigation is classified? Simple, you don't. During the 1940s and beyond, the FBI frequently pulled off what was called black bag operations. This was when the organization would simply break into residences or businesses under the cover of darkness and search for evidence without ever informing the subject of the search that they were being watched. Many of these never escalated to criminal prosecution, so they weren't disclosed until the files were declassified. The tactic continued until 1966 when the Bureau ordered it stopped and it was declared unconstitutional in 1972. But not all targets of FBI investigation are as obvious. Number 43, the Lady of Peace. Jane Addams was one of the most prominent early feminist reformers, a tireless advocate in the progressive era for women's suffrage and public housing. She even became the first American woman to be awarded with the Nobel Peace Prize for her role in the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement. So, why is there an FBI file on the woman? How about a treason investigation? When World War I began, Adams held fast to her anti-war beliefs and she founded a women's party devoted to peace. In the 1920s, when she opposed the persecution of communist activists, the FBI started monitoring her, but came up empty on criminal charges. But one peace movement led to more investigations than any other. Number 42, Yippee! The Vietnam War was deeply controversial and many anti-war activists wound up being investigated by the government. Chief among them was Abby Hoffman, whose brushes with the law would lead to what became known as the Trial of the Chicago Eight. His group, the Youth International Party, better known as the Yippies, was frequently investigated by the FBI over a period of five years. Those digging through the FBI archives will find a whopping 50-part series on the colorful figure, who wound up being portrayed by Sacha Baron Cohen in the movie The Trial of the Chicago Seven. One bloody day would come to define the Vietnam protest movement and lead to years of FBI investigation. Number 41, Blood on American Soil. It started out as any other peace rally in 1970, with students at Kent State University in Ohio protesting the National Guard presence on campus as the war expanded to Cambodia. But what wasn't typical was the National Guard opening fire on the unarmed crowd. 
killing four students and wounding nine others. Two of the dead were bystanders, not protesters, and massive rallies around the country protested the killings. Ultimately, none of the guardsmen who fired were criminally prosecuted. But the FBI spent years investigating the shooting, and all of those documents can now be read in a 22-part series. But some FBI cases are a lot less serious. Number 40. There's no place like home. Few pieces of movie memorabilia are more iconic. Dorothy's iconic ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. That's why it was such big news when they were stolen from the Judy Garland Museum in 2005. The theft was reported to the police, but the interstate smuggling operation was soon taken over by the FBI. It took the government organization more than 10 years to track down the thief, and even then it took multiple agents on a sting operation before the rare shoes were returned back home where they belonged. But some cases might be a little silly. Number 39. Sing that song. Louie Louie. Oh no. Me gotta go. The song's probably stuck in your head now, right? Nah, we're not. But what does it actually mean? No one really knows, and neither did the FBI. When the popular song by the Kingsmen debuted in 1963, it became a sensation, and many people wondered if the song was hiding a dirty little secret. Were the words secretly pornographic? Were they hiding a coded political message? The FBI spent a full year investigating <laughs> the song and its creators and came up empty, as the lyrics remain as unintelligible as they were back in 1963. It wasn't the only time the FBI got involved in music. Number 38, not fab. Everyone loved the Beatles, if their army of screaming fans was any indication. But the government wasn't as fond of the shaggy-haired British band. And the Nixon administration had a particular grudge against left-wing songwriter John Lennon. Nixon was convinced that Lennon was plotting to influence the 1972 election with his popularity. And the FBI launched an investigation that led to the Immigration and Naturalization Service, starting the process of deporting Lennon. While Lennon was never banned from the country, he did back off plans for an American tour. A victory for Nixon that was later exposed by journalist John Wiener. But you might be shocked by just how many celebrities have FBI files. Number 37. Before the White House. Ronald Reagan having an FBI file shouldn't be a surprise. After all, they probably like to know about the president. But he was on the agency's radar long before 1980. In 1947, when he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, he had a file. But why would they want to know about the staunch conservative? Surely the last suspect anyone would have as a communist agent. Because Reagan was such a strong anti-communist that he and his then-wife, Jane Wyman, worked with federal agents to turn over the name of any actors they thought might be communists. The future president was an informant, but one more beloved figure had FBI ties as well. Number 36, The Mouse's Secret. Walt Disney was notorious for being a traditionalist, and the man behind Mickey Mouse and the Disney parks didn't like anything that shattered the illusion of the all-American happiness in his properties. That included people with unpopular political views, which led to his deep ties with the government. He had worked with them on World War II propaganda films, and long after the war, he was still cooperating with Most people have no clue that in 2023, the best way to make money on Amazon is not with physical products. The government. He had worked with them on World War II propaganda films, and long after the war, he was still cooperating with them, giving them information on un-American activities in Hollywood. He continued working with them through his death in 1966, and was even named a full special agent in charge contact. But many celebrities have files for less official reasons. Number 35, The Lady Sings. Why would Whitney Houston have an FBI file? The late singer lived a controversial life, and it got her on the government's radar. While her troubles with drugs and money and her often chaotic relationships landed her in the tabloids, the FBI was more interested in her associates. Many people from her life tried to take advantage of her, including a stalker, who tried to blackmail her for a quarter of a million dollars. 
but why would one of the least controversial singers of all times be on the list? Number 34, Take Me Home? John Denver seemed like the guy next door, with his easy listening country music songs being the type your parents sing along to on a long car ride. But the FBI saw things differently. Up until his death in a plane crash, Denver had amassed a 33-page FBI file. It was mostly concerned with his anti-war activism as a young man and his occasional drug use, but it also followed stalkers and death threats he picked up as a celebrity. The FBI even got involved in some notorious tabloid stories. Number 33, The Bombshell. Anna Nicole Smith was famous for marrying a much older man who died not long after. She inherited most of the fortune, much to the anger of the oil tycoon's son, E. Pierce Marshall. The two were involved in a vicious court battle over the massive bank account, vicious enough for Marshall to believe Smith tried to kill him. This led to an FBI investigation that ultimately decided there wasn't enough to charge Smith. Ultimately, it was all for nothing. Marshall and Smith died within a year of each other in 2006 and 2007. But even the original bombshell was on the FBI's radar. Number 32, government prefers blondes? Marilyn Monroe has been the subject of countless government conspiracies due to her mysterious death. But the FBI wasn't interested in that. They were more concerned with her love life. One of Monroe's many loves was acclaimed playwright Arthur Miller, who was believed to have communist leanings. Due to Monroe's influence, the FBI kept an eye on her, which led many to believe the government might have been involved in her death. But she wasn't the only icon to wind up in the FBI's files. Number 31, Lucy. Everyone loved Lucia Ball, who along with husband Desi Arnaz, created one of the most iconic sitcoms of all time. But Ball was an eccentric woman who once claimed she picked up spy chatter in her tooth fillings. The FBI was more concerned with her political leanings as the comedy star had been affiliated with the Communist Party in the 1930s. Ball was repeatedly interviewed and denied having any ongoing communist affiliations. While she was never placed on the notorious blacklists of the 50s, her file grew to 156 pages. But some stars had a rougher road with the FBI. Number 30, Hartley Silent. Charlie Chaplin was best known for the fiscal comedy and for famously opposing Hitler with his silent film, The Great Dictator. But he was anything but silent off the screen. He was a political activist who was believed to be a communist sympathizer. Chaplin was a British citizen who worked a lot in the United States, and J. Edgar Hoover wanted to make that more difficult. He even famously blocked Chaplin's return to the U.S. in 1952, which led Chaplin and his wife to depart for Switzerland permanently. This next target wasn't afraid to fight back. Number 29. Turnabout is fair play. Truman Capote likely expected to be investigated by the FBI. After all, the author behind Breakfast at Tiffany's was a well-known left-wing activist who supported Fidel Castro in Cuba and exposed the injustices of the U.S. justice system. But why did the colorful author have a 200-page FBI file? That might be because he made a personal enemy of J. Edgar Hoover by spreading rumors that the FBI chief was in a homosexual relationship. Sometimes it's not anything someone does, it's what the FBI thinks they can get. Number 28, Hard Rock. Rock Hudson was one of the first true matinee idols, a handsome movie star who became a sensation in the 60s. But he had a secret, and the FBI was ready to take advantage. Hudson, a closeted gay man, was interviewed by the FBI, and the 34-page FBI file can be accessed online, but not all of it. The file is still heavily redacted which has led many to wonder what the FBI wanted with Hudson, who famously became one of Hollywood's first AIDS casualties. Sports brought a surprising number of figures to the FBI's attention. Number 27, The Breakthrough. Few figures in American history have become more universally loved than Jackie Robinson, the man who broke Major League Baseball's color barrier. But after his accomplishment, Robinson refused to be quiet and play ball. He became involved in the civil rights movement and supported presidential candidates from both parties. 
But what got him on the FBI's radar was his support of a Harlem facility for the International Workers' Order, which had supposedly had communist ties. But one sports icon was on the FBI's radar for far less savory reasons. Number 26, shame of the Yankees. George Steinbrenner was many things, including the owner of the Yankees during one of their most successful periods. But he was also a notorious crook. He made illegal donations to Nixon's re-election campaign, wound up paying a $15,000 fine, and then campaigned to be pardoned of the charges. While he eventually got his wish, his shady financial dealings led him to have an extensive FBI file from 1986 to his death in 2010. Sometimes, people get investigated before a big promotion. Number 25. We're listening to Insane FBI, um, Declassified FBI Secrets You Didn't Know, and more FBI Facts on the infographic show youtube say criticize him all you want for his brutality but you can't underestimate the man's brain power his first cryptogram was the 408 which is called that because that's how many total symbols are in it it was published by the san francisco chronicle and two other newspapers that were each sent different parts of the puzzle and the public was asked to solve it a couple of teachers in california named donald jean and betty june harding did just that and it only took them 20 hours Strange, since the so-called experts had failed where they succeeded. There's actually a conspiracy theory that the two were the Zodiac, but that's a story for another day. So in all this cryptogram contained 54 different cipher symbols in 25 letters that are in the English alphabet. The couple worked out that they were looking at what's called a homophonic substitution cipher, which basically means you replace one letter with another, say a D for an M. It gets tricky though when one letter can be replaced by five different letters. The couple cracked it though, and this is how the decoded message began. I like killing people because it's so much fun. It's more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It's even better than getting the rocks off of a girl. He then goes on about slaves in the afterlife and paradise. So despite being very clever, the Zodiac may also be suffering from mental illnesses. And he wasn't finished killing. Just over a month later, he struck again. This time, he picked on two Pacific Union College students named Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard. They were enjoying a picnic at a bucolic spot next to Lake Berryessa in California's beautiful Napa Valley. The pair might have received the shock of their lives when they saw a man that looked like a vision from hell walking toward their very secluded spot. It was a man about 5 foot 11, average weight, wearing what looked like an executioner's hood. They couldn't see his eyes though due to the fact that he was wearing sunglasses over the mask's eye holes. If that wasn't frightening enough, he was also wearing what looked like a child's bib. On that bib was his now famous crossed circle symbol. The couple were absolutely petrified but didn't move since the maniac approaching them was clasping a handgun. He told them not to worry and told them a story about being a convict on the run. He subsequently told the young man to tie up his girlfriend with plastic clothesline that the supposed convict just happened to have handy. The Zodiac then tied up the man himself. What happened next is usually what only happens in horror movies featuring college students that drive out to the woods or a lake, even though they're warned not to do so by a peculiar-looking gas station owner. The Zodiac started going crazy, stabbing them both in the back. He stabbed the man six times and the woman ten times. Leaving them for dead, the Zodiac walked about 500 yards to where the couple's car was parked, and there he drew his symbol on the door and wrote, Vallejo, 12-20-68-7-4-69, September 27-69-6-30, by night. That evening, the Zodiac got the Napa Police Department on the phone and told them that he really was behind the double murder at the lake. The cops later discovered he'd made that call from a Napa car wash that was just around the corner from their department. The cops got a lead from this, though, because they managed to get some prints from the phone. Not only that, the kids he stabbed weren't dead. 
They were discovered inches from death, having lost a ton of blood. The girl told the cops what she'd seen, but not long after she fell into a coma and died in the hospital two days later. The man survived, though, and told the cops everything he knew. The police also had other clues, such as tire tracks, most likely from the killer's car, and his size 10.5 wing walker boot prints. Now cops knew they were looking for a true American psycho. Soon after, the Zodiac struck again, this time murdering a taxi driver named Paul Stein with a bullet to the back of the head. Three days later, the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter from the Zodiac containing a piece of Stein's shirt. There was no doubt that it was the real deal. The Zodiac said in the letter that the cops could have caught him if they'd been doing their job correctly. He also wrote, school children make nice targets. Think I should wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot the front tire and pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. Just over a week later, someone claiming to be the Zodiac called the Oakland Police Department. The person demanded that either one of the two big shot lawyers, F. Lee Bailey or Melvin Belly, go to a popular local talk show hosted by a man named Jim Dunbar. Belly did just that and appealed for the killer to call in. The man who said he was the Zodiac did call. He said, I need help. I'm sick. I don't want to go to the gas chamber. And he even said he'd meet with Belly, but in the end, he didn't turn up. As you'll soon find out, there was likely more to that call than first meets the eye. This finally brings us to that unbreakable puzzle. Not long after that no-show with the lawyer, the Chronicle received a new communication from the Zodiac. This time, it was a cryptogram containing 340 characters, which came to be known as Cypher 340, and it proved to be too difficult for the best minds in the world to decipher at the time. People tried for decades from the USA and across the world, but what the Zodiac killer had created was something special, something so incredibly <clears throat> difficult that after years of trying and failing, the puzzle was forgotten by most code crackers. Maybe it was meaningless, they thought, an assumption that put their frustrated minds at ease. But then in 2006, a global team of crack code breakers took a look at the impossible puzzle again. They knew it meant something, but finding the key was no easy task. It would end up taking them 14 years to finally decipher the code. That's dedication. The team included an American software developer named David Aranjak, a computer programmer from Belgium named Jarl van Eyke, and an Australian mathematician named Sam Blake. Their hard work finally brought the words of the Zodiac to the public. Ike had actually developed software to break the codes, and he had created it specifically to crack the one made by the Zodiac. Blake's role in figuring out the cipher was to manipulate the symbols and see how they could be transposed, and Aranchak did the rest. The team said at times they'd hit somewhere with the puzzle and they'd find a word, but then they discovered that what they discovered was a false positive, what they called a phantom. Then one day Aranchak announced, this is a big one, we have a solution for the 340 and it's real. It hadn't been easy. The team had looked at hundreds of thousands of different manipulations of the text. Then on a Thursday morning at the beginning of December 2020, a variation of the text showed up. In the program, Aranchak said at first sight it looked like gibberish, but it also contained the words gas chamber and the even more Zodiac-esque phrase, hope you're trying to catch me. That was a signature Zodiac taunt. If those phrases were actually part of the correct solution to the puzzle, what the team would have to do is apply a cipher that had been used for those words to the rest of the symbols in the cryptogram. It was complicated. They realized they had to look at the puzzle and read it in a diagonal fashion. So they took the symbol in the top left-hand corner and wrote it down. So if it was an H, they'd write H. Then they'd move down one and over to the right two spaces. Then they'd write down that symbol, which here is a plus sign. Then they went through the entire puzzle doing this until they'd written down every symbol. What they ended up with was a completely different looking puzzle. It still looked like nonsense, of course, but now they had something new that they could put into the code breaking software. Ah, the 
team was rather disappointed after that. Not only did not much of anything come up, but the terms gas chamber and hope you're trying to catch me weren't there either. It was as if they'd gone backward. But then Aranchak tried something else. He added the words they suspected were correct. Gas chamber and hope you're trying to catch me to the software as known solutions and let the program run. Presto, an English message popped up. The words of the Grandmaster Secret Code Psycho, the Zodiac himself. That wasn't me on the TV show. Was this the Zodiac telling the cops that the guy that had called in to talk to the lawyer was an imposter? Aranchak almost fell out of his chair. After 51 years, it was as if the Zodiac had risen from the grave. The team could now decrypt the first part of the puzzle, but the same method of code breaking didn't work for the other two parts. Since the first part was almost definitely correct, it didn't make sense that the other sections couldn't be solved in the same way. But then they hypothesized that the reason it didn't work was because the Zodiac had actually made a mistake when he designed the cipher. If that was the case, it was no wonder no one could crack it. You can't open a broken lock with a good key. The team took into consideration that he'd made some spelling mistakes. They corrected the mistakes and then used a slightly different system of moving down into the right diagonally reading the symbols, and they discovered something amazing. It worked. The Zodiac really had made a mistake in his code. And here it is. The fully decrypted words of the Zodiac himself from a code that remained unbroken for over 50 years. He wrote, I hope you're having lots of fun in trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I'm not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise. So they're afraid of death. I'm not afraid because I know that my new life, his life will be an easy one in paradise death. It was true. The man who called and spoke to Melvin Belly really was an imposter. The Zodiac had always been somewhat narcissistic in his writing. He'd always bragged about being one step ahead of the cops. He never seemed scared or repentant, like how the caller sounded. The Zodiac, perhaps suffering from a mental illness, actually believed his victims could be waiting on him hand and foot in the afterlife. It appears he didn't believe the heaven-held dichotomy for good guys and bad guys. The team didn't waste any time in contacting the FBI to alert them that they'd cracked the puzzle. The FBI subsequently issued a statement saying it was true, and while it's exciting and a huge accomplishment to finally have cracked the code, it didn't actually get us any closer to understanding the true identity of America's most confounding serial killer. The message doesn't really help the investigation at all, which the FBI says is still ongoing. We continue to seek justice for the victims of these brutal crimes, wrote the agency. But that's not the end of the Zodiac story when it comes to codes. There are two more ciphers that were sent by the Zodiac that haven't yet been solved. They are both very short, and some people believe one of them could even be his name. Being short doesn't make a cipher easier, though. Far from it. Because it's short, there are fewer clues for a key. The 340 cipher team has tried to track those remaining puzzles, but suspects that because it's so short, unless new information is discovered, it's likely a hopeless task. And so while the code is cracked, the identity of the Zodiac Killer remains a mystery. People will continue trying, though, and who knows, maybe one day someone will finally solve the last of the masked maniac's mysteries and will finally learn the truth of just who the Zodiac Killer is. The FBI is the United States' premier law enforcement agency and has responsibilities that range from counterterrorism to drug interdiction and investigating financial crimes. With such a broad range of responsibilities, it's only natural that FBI agents are going to come across a wide variety of suspects. And this makes FBI interrogators some of the most skilled in the world. Today we're going to...
going to teach you some basic interrogation techniques used by the FBI and other agencies that you can use in everyday life to get to the truth of the matter, or perhaps figure out when someone is lying to you or not. First, though, it's important to note that there's a difference between an interrogation and an interview. An interview is typically a fact-finding mission, while an interrogation is much more focused. In an interview, the interrogator is typically not fully aware of most of the elements of a crime and is seeking more general information about the events that took place. Interviews are commonly undertaken with witnesses, though sometimes suspects can be interviewed as well. And based off information gleaned, an interview can later turn into a full-blown interrogation. An interrogation, on the other hand, is a quest for specific information or an attempt to gain a confession. In an interrogation, the person conducting the proceeding is typically aware of most facts of a case or an incident and is simply seeking specific key pieces that may still be missing. An interrogation can also serve to force a suspect into admitting that they lied in a previous interview or to encourage them to divulge facts they're reluctant to. Finally, an interrogator may be perfectly aware of all the facts of a case and simply use an interrogation to gain a confession. Despite what you think, the FBI does not endorse overly aggressive interrogations. And instead, it's department policy that establishing a rapport with an individual is far more productive to fact-gathering than intimidation, misdirection, or threats. In the early 2000s, when the Abu Ghraib prison scandal broke out, and the world learned that the CIA and U.S. military had been beating prisoners to gain information, the United States inspector... Are you a video creator looking to get more viewers and earn money? Try to post your over one minute video on TikTok. Inspector General announced that the FBI had always conducted itself according to department guidelines. In fact, many FBI interrogators flat out refused to take part in interrogations that used, as the CIA and military put it, enhanced interrogation techniques and walked out of interrogations, then reported the individuals to their superiors. This integrity from the FBI <laughs> is what helped to bring the scandal to life and put a stop to the abuses by military and CIA personnel. So how can you better get the truth in your own life? What techniques can you learn and apply to use day-to-day? -day? First, a former FBI agent and interrogator warns you that you should always be aware of as many of the facts of what you're seeking information on as possible. If a suspect believes that the interrogator is grasping at straws or not fully aware of events, then the tone of the interrogation dramatically changes. This might encourage a suspect to be deceitful or embolden them to withhold facts. So, let's say that you're interrogating your co-worker, Kelly, because your food's gone missing from the refrigerator and you suspect it's her. First, make sure you're as well informed as you can possibly be before you start your interrogation. This means gathering intelligence on Kelly. What does she typically eat? What does she like to eat? When does she typically eat? Are there witnesses that can perhaps let you know if she was at her desk or not around the time your lunch went missing? More mundane details are important as well, such as the general state of the refrigerator when the sandwich went missing, how many other people brought food, how many ordered in. Basically, the more facts you're aware of, the better. When most people are confronted in a situation where their interrogator is obviously well-informed, it can act as an intimidating force, making them feel that deceitfulness will not work on you. Also, the more obviously well-informed you are, the more the suspect will realize that you're willing to sit down for an extensive discussion, and that might make them feel like it would just be better to give up the goods early. You've probably seen cop shows on TV when the investigator will lay out a cunning trap for a suspect they're sure committed a crime. Typically, the detective will lie about evidence they possess, making the suspect fear that he's about to be discovered and might as well give himself or herself up. While there are some instances where lying is allowed for police interrogators, it's not recommended that you do so. Your lie may work, but if it doesn't and the suspect realizes you're lying, it can backfire in a major way. 
Once you've lied to a suspect and they've realized it, they'll become convinced that they can't trust you and clam up. They could also assume that any plea deals or offers of amnesty are also lies, and you effectively take away any leverage you might have over them. You know Kelly took that sandwich. You can see the crumbs on the corner of her mouth and smell the chicken parmesan on her breath. But if you lie to her and tell her that you have security camera footage of the deed, she might realize you're full of it. In that case, your interrogation is over and Kelly is walking away a free woman, or a woman that doesn't owe you a sandwich, since we're pretty sure sandwich theft isn't a criminal offense. Rather than trying to trick or intimidate a suspect, former FBI interrogators state that you should build a rapport with the suspect instead. If the suspect learns that they can trust you, or at least respect you, they might be more prone to sharing information they wouldn't with anyone else. Also, in a criminal system, a suspect that has a good rapport with the interrogator may believe that the interrogator will later tell the prosecutor that they were helpful, and thus reduce their criminal penalty. <laughs> you want to slam a book down on the table, maybe toss a chair or two. It's time for good cop, bad cop, because now Kelly burped and you could practically taste the chicken parm yourself. Yet, she won't admit it. She steadfastly refuses to take the blame for the missing sandwich. So, rein in your anger and center yourself. Be courteous. Ask her about her typical lunch. Share some of the same interests that you have together as far as food is concerned. You'll be working to drop Kelly's guard, and at the same time, she'll be thinking that if you're this nice to her now, maybe you'll put in a good word with the boss when it comes time to punishing the person responsible for chicken parm theft. Now it's time to turn up the heat. It's time for the Reed technique. Developed by a professional consultant and polygraph expert named John E. Reed, the Reed technique is one of the most widely adopted interrogation techniques across the world. The first step is to confront the suspect with the facts, as well as the evidence against them. Tell Kelly that your sandwich went missing, and that during the 15 minutes that it went missing, she was not at her desk, according to her fellow co-workers. Further, let her know that you're aware of the fact that last Friday she ordered chicken parm from Grubhub. Be confident, and start letting Kelly know that you know she was involved in the theft. Her stress levels will begin to rise, and if she's being deceitful, you should be on the lookout for fidgeting, licking of lips, or touching of hair. These are all signs that Kelly ate your damn chicken parm and is lying to you about it. The next step is called theme development, and here is where you'll weave a story about why Kelly committed the crime that she did. You'll retell the criminal act, but with Kelly as the main character. You should speak to her in a soft, soothing voice, appearing non-threatening and lulling Kelly into a false sense of security. Be aware of how she reacts to your theme as you lay it out, and if it becomes clear that she isn't responding at all, change the story up and try again. This will make up the bulk of your interrogation, and you'll be using other techniques to reinforce this step. Kelly forgot her lunch that day, so she figured, well, I'll just order something on my phone again. Then lunchtime came, though, and Kelly realized that she has T-Mobile as a cell provider, and that means she doesn't have services anywhere, ever. Oh no, Kelly thought. What am I going to do for lunch now? That's when she went to the employee refrigerator, opening it up and hoping that perhaps there was a stray cup of yogurt somewhere someone never ate. Perhaps something close to expiration date, left alone and forgotten. Nobody would miss that lonely cup of yogurt, but that's when she saw it. Your delicious chicken parmesan on sourdough bread. Next to the refrigerator, the microwave, and down the hall, an unused storage closet. The perfect place to hide and enjoy an ill-gotten chicken parmesan sandwich. Kelly could practically taste the melted cheese. It was either this or eat nothing at all, and her stomach was rumbling. She's not a bad person, she just had a small breakfast is all. See what we did there? We created a theme that was sympathetic to Kelly. Kelly's plight 
recreated events from a point of view that didn't treat Kelly like the dirty, rotten criminal that she actually is. We excused her for the theft, appealed to her sense of helplessness in the situation, let her believe that we understood and were sympathetic to the theft. Throughout your building of the theme, though, you'll have to stop Kelly's denials on the spot. Once a suspect is allowed to voice a denial, it increases their confidence. Every time Kelly tries to object and voice a denial, simply cut her off and let her know that it'll be her turn to talk in a minute. Don't let her start to voice denials, or she'll become emboldened and immune to your tactics. Be polite, but very firm. Next, you'll have to be ready to overcome objections, which differ from denials. Denials are basically just a brief, I didn't do it statement. Objections, however, offer logic-based reasons for why the suspect simply couldn't have committed the crime. Kelly might say, I could never have stolen your sandwich. My father died of starvation because someone stole his sandwich. It's your job to use the information she gives you and turn it around on her. You can, for instance, reply with, I understand that you could never plan to... Hi, my name is Rachel Poe. I am a junior software engineer with Capgemini. Plan to do something so awful after what happened to your father. It was just a one-time mistake. You were hungry and out of control. I understand. You should turn objections into admissions of guilt. At this point, Kelly is frustrated. She's literally marinating in her own guilt. It's your job to vent some of that pressure and earn more of her trust. This whole time, you should have been either across the table from Kelly or walking around the room, towering over her. That makes her feel smaller and vulnerable. But now you're going to sit down on her side of the table, lower yourself to her level, and draw close. Put a hand on her shoulder, offer physical gestures of concern. Now it's time to get your confession. It's time to build alternatives. At this stage, you offer two different motives for the crime. One should be more reasonable, so as to nudge the suspect along, while the other should be more morally repugnant. This will help the suspect agree to the more reasonable motivation and lead to confession. It doesn't matter if this motivation is real or not. All that matters is the almighty confession. Tell Kelly that perhaps she stole the sandwich because she just couldn't resist the temptation. Heck, get tickets to see the Suns take on the New York Knicks Friday, December 15th at 8 p.m. Stick Tell Kelly that perhaps she stole the sandwich because she just couldn't resist the temptation. Heck, you couldn't resist the temptation of that Snickers bar you ate last night even though you're supposed to be dieting. This motive is understandable. It's relatable. It's something that a rational, reasonable person could excuse. It's just a mistake, that's all. Then tell Kelly that perhaps she stole the sandwich because it was her that stole her father's sandwich, which led to his death by starvation. Perhaps <laughs> Kelly loves to starve people to death, one sandwich at a time, and she thought that she could get away with it again today. This motive is outrageous and morally repugnant, likely causing Kelly to object loudly to it. That's good. That's what you want her to do, because you're going to backtrack and lead her down the road to the first motive. I know, you're not a sandwich killer, Kelly. I've known you for months now. You seem like such a nice person. You were just hungry. It was a mistake, I understand. At this point, Kelly's probably in tears, and more than ready to confess. Congratulations, because you've just used FBI interrogation techniques to get your co-worker to confess to stealing your sandwich. And it's a good thing that you have a solid grasp on these techniques, because everything you just did to your co-worker is basically one giant super fireable offense, and you're going to need a new job after you get canned. You've got your story straight. You've spent months prepping to go undercover and infiltrate the Italian-American mafia. You are no longer named Joseph Pistone, and from now on, you'll only answer to a name the crew calls you. You've got a fake driver's license that bears that name. And you've got swagger befitting a gangster. You know how to use that mafia twang and say, How you doing? And forget about it in just the right way. You're going to try and fool some of the most dangerous criminals in the world and bring them down. That will mean seeing some disturbing things. And as you move through this new life, every day could be your last. 
This is the story of one of the biggest lies the FBI ever told. The story of a man who was once known as Donnie Brasco. Joseph Joe Pistone was the right fit for an undercover cop who would infiltrate an Italian-American crime family. He was part Sicilian, grew up in New Jersey where the Mafia presence was strong, and so he had the background and knew the patois of those gangsters. He looked the part, sounded the part, and when the time came, he was ready to be a wise guy. In fact, a much wiser guy than the wise guys he worked with. His early life didn't consist of petty crime and fighting in the mean streets of New Jersey. He studied hard, attained a degree in anthropology, and later went to work for naval intelligence. It wasn't until 1969, when he was 30 years old, that he started working for the FBI. Five years later, he was moving to New York when he joined the truck hijacking unit, with hijacking trucks being a big money spinner for the Mafia. Sometimes the truck drivers were in on it too, and took payment, and maybe a black eye for a payoff. Hundreds of trucks were getting done over, and millions of dollars of items were being stolen. It didn't really matter what the bounty was, it could all be sold on. In 1974, when Pistone joined that unit, the truck hijacking business was bringing in $4.2 million a year. Something had to be done. But it wasn't the truck hijacking that made Pistone a well-regarded name in the FBI. It was when he went undercover for the first time and brought down a vehicle theft ring. 30 people were arrested, and the FBI knew they had a man they could use. It was 1976 when Pistone put his hand up and said he was willing to go undercover again. But this time, the assignment was about as dangerous as could be. He said he'd infiltrate one of the five families that ran New York City's criminal underworld. That was the Bonanno crime family. He spoke Italian fluently, including the street slang of the gangsters. He'd grown up among them and had a Sicilian heritage, and as he proved, he could work well undercover. There wasn't really a better man for the job. He just needed to create a backstory, and that meant everything. From fictional fights he had in high school, and how much he loved his grandmother's pasta con lasarde and mouth-watering casata siciliana, he had the known names in the mafia, and how the organization worked. He had made up past loves, he had been kicked around the tough streets, and that's how he got into crime. His principal income was jewel thievery, and if you're a jewel thief, you have to know a thing or two about jewels. This was a tricky part of the backstory, and Pistone had to spend some time studying gemology. He passed with bright flying colors. His name was erased. He was expunged from history. There was no Joe Pistone now, only Donnie Brasco, the jewel thief. It was intended that he'd stay this way for six months, but as you'll see, things didn't quite work out that way. One day, this man named Donnie turned up in Little Italy. He frequented restaurants and hung out in bars. He always seemed to have a lot of cash on him. And while he didn't immediately tell the folks he met why this was, he did get particularly friendly with the barman at one place. Then, he let it be known that he had jewels and he knew where he could get more jewels. He was useful to any criminal empire. With all the cash he had, he was obviously pretty good at his job. You have to think about how dangerous this was. It wasn't as if he was working in Alaska. He could have easily been spotted by someone he knew. And if met on the street and called Joe, he was done for. To prevent anyone from letting the story out, only a few people and the FBI knew about the operation, while his co-workers just thought he'd moved on someplace. His own friends didn't know where he'd gone. The man was a ghost. He couldn't be seen to be big time, otherwise someone would have already heard of him. But the act was that while he was small time, he could certainly get involved with bigger things and likely earn for a family. It actually took about six months before he got a break and was introduced to someone from the Colombo crime family. There, he started working for Jilly Greca and his crew, an outfit that got most of their money from stealing and hijacking. This wasn't really the higher echelons of Mafia crews, but it was a start. 
The funny thing is, because he was so undercover, the New York cops soon had a file on him. That file said he was a crook and a new addition to the Greca crew named Don Brasco. Then he got another break and met a man with a violent temper and a will to kill. That man was Anthony Tony Mira, and he was part of the Bonanno crime family. Now, things got serious because Tony was known for his temper. It's thought he killed 30 to 40 people during his criminal career. Brasco worked more closely with other members. Temu, shop like a billionaire. <clears throat> Install and go. Members of the family, including Dominic Sonny Black Napolitano and Benjamin Lefty Guns Ruggiero, he developed a close friendship with the latter, and this is how the many exploits of the Mafia got back to the FBI. During this time, life was filled with patches of boredom and loneliness. Months and years passed, and he had no real friends or anyone to love or confide in. It was a dangerous job, but one of the worst aspects of working undercover was basically not being able to be you and enjoy unadulterated emotions. When it came to the more dangerous side of this life, Brasco was never involved in things like big shootouts, and he never had to whack a guy. He just played a part, stayed in character, and listened. Of course, he had to witness violence, though. Unlike some undercover agents that would follow, Brasco never lost sight of who he was. While he acted well, he was always aware that he was an FBI agent, and his friendships were not real. He might laugh and joke around with them, and the laughter wasn't fake, but he also knew that one bad move would mean those guys laughing with him would fix him a pair of cement boots and send him for a swim in the Hudson. He also had a wife and kids who depended on him. They knew nothing about what he was doing, and he only got to see them once every few months. At one point, he had a car trunk filled with Christmas gifts and was about to go home to his family, but then he bumped into some of his crew, and they took him out on a wild night. He had to play the part. The guys in this crew thought Donnie was a bachelor and would be spending Christmas alone in his room. They sympathized with the man. They even visited him at his room and brought a surprise Christmas tree, after which they helped him decorate it. What are you gonna do? It's Christmas time. Bada bing, bada boom. There was even one time when Brasco's wife had a near-fatal car accident and he had to go missing for several days. Upon returning, he couldn't show sadness and had to make up a story as to where he'd been. One of the scariest aspects of the job as time went by was when he was summoned to a mob meeting. Every single time he showed up, he wondered if his real identity had been exposed and he would get whacked there and then. On another occasion, he and Lefty were blamed for messing up a job and he could have been taken out for that, but instead they let him off. Brasco ended up in Florida, where he ran quite a successful operation. At this point, the ill-tempered Mira had just gotten out of jail and discovered that Brasco was making a lot of cash. He demanded part of that, seeing as it was him that gave him his start. This was also a troublesome time when lives were on the line. But when he was alone with Sonny or Lefty, much of the time, they just lived like normal friends. They didn't always talk about mafia stuff. You have to remember, this went on for years and years. And while movies or TV might depict Brasco's life as being crime 24 hours a day, it just wasn't like that. Most of the time was spent sitting at home watching TV or going to the bar and playing cards. Brasco didn't know too much about the inner workings of the crime family because he wasn't a made man. You know, what you need to know is how the Mafia dealt with things. They knew very well that in New York City, you are never more than a few feet away from a rat. From time to time, things slipped, though, and a big break for Brasco is when Sonny told them about three captains that had been whacked. They'd been told to come to a meeting, and when they got there, they were shot by Lefty and other men. Sonny was now confiding in Brasco, which was good and bad. The downside to becoming a closer member of the family was doing what family members did, and that was dealing in violence and sometimes murder. Sonny said to Brasco, 
I need you to take out a person, but you know what? I'm gonna try and make you a made man. You'll be one of us. We're gonna make some serious money. He was now in too deep for his own good. One, because killing someone was too extreme an act to follow. And two, because now he was so close to Sonny, he was a target for the people he was supposedly warring against. He might get taken out both as a wise guy and in the line of duty. It was too much. The FBI pulled him out. The aftermath was, to say the least, chaotic. And at first, Brasco's old crew didn't believe the truth. They thought this was some kind of wicked lie, a trap laid by the FBI. They soon discovered it wasn't a lie, and Donnie Brasco, their friend and associate, had never existed. Sonny was soon murdered for getting too close to Brasco and not unearthing the truth. Lefty ended up in prison. Mira went to hiding. But things weren't looking too good because the Bonanno family boss, one Joseph Massino, had ordered his murder. A mafia soldier named Joseph D'Amico did the business in the end, shooting him a few times in the head. Ironically, D'Amico would also later become an informant. As for what happened during the job, his friendships made. Pistone once said, I had no sense of guilt. All during the course of the operation, I knew it was a job. He did later say, though, that he didn't want his old comrades to be killed. He only wanted them in prison. The Mafia put a $500,000 contract out of Pistone's life. And to counter what some people believe, he says it's never been rescinded. He and his family live with false names, which they change occasionally. No one knows where they are, and they certainly stay away from locations where there is a Mafia presence. Time might have passed, but Pistone believes there'll be some big shot out there who wants to say he was the man who took down the FBI's most famous undercover cop. You finally picked up the courage to visit the dark web, and you took every necessary precaution to stay invisible to the authorities. At first, you were only going to look around and not actually purchase anything. But after a few of your buddies came around to your house, you all decided you'd buy a big bag of illegal pills. Not only that, after a few drinks, you watched a video you shouldn't have watched. You weren't concerned. You used a VPN. Your IP address couldn't be seen by prying eyes. And then, boom, one day the cops burst through your door. How on earth did that happen? How did they find you? That's what we'll discuss today. Number five, hacking. First of all, you should know that a lot of people use the dark web for good reasons. Maybe they are journalists or political dissidents in countries with strict regimes. So some human rights advocates are happy that the authorities can't find people in the dark web. That's why it was controversial when a cyber criminal named Eric Owen Marquez was arrested in 2013 and later got a prison sentence of 30 years. This guy was certainly in the wrong and was hosting websites within the dark that were selling drugs, hacking techniques, and money laundering operations. He was huge, and it's thought his cloud computing company, Freedom Hub...
I like it. It blows my mind. This shouldn't have happened, of course. The Tor network this guy used was supposed to be impenetrable. But then, one day, users started seeing something weird. A new code running in websites hosted by Freedom Hosting. Suddenly, all the websites went down. That weird code exploited a Firefox vulnerability, and so not only did the websites go down, but people using those websites were unmasked. Well, they were mm -hmm. until they could update their software. Tens of thousands of IP addresses were exposed, and some of those people that were exposed were arrested. That could have been you, and you might have been seen buying bags of Columbia's finest powder. But private email systems were also run on Freedom Hosting, so journalists or Freedom Fighters may have also been exposed. So that's one way you could be found out using the dark web. The government might get its crack team of hackers together and create a code that exploits a vulnerability in some software. It might not mean they've come knocking at your door, but your name will certainly be saved in the FBI's database. You've been flagged. Thousands of people around the world have been arrested this way. In the U.S., the FBI won't say how it hacks its way into the dark web, while in other countries, governments also keep their surveillance under wraps. In the U.K., the government gives its intelligence agencies something called bulk powers, which allows them to spy on people. The thing is, the agencies don't have to submit any information to the court as to exactly how they got you. That remains a secret. If you're worried about being hacked by the government, though, wait until you hear how they can get you without hacking you at all. Number four, cops go undercover. Sometimes the government doesn't really have to get technical. The authorities can use techniques that they use on the streets. Cops can go undercover. Let's say you're on the dark web and you find a place where you can get the illegal substance MDMA. All the reviews are positive regarding the seller. So you think, okay, I'll take 500 pills because you're in college and you want to pay your tuition fees off. Well, you might just be buying your pills from a cop who's been undercover posing as Rick the Raver, the merchant of Molly. Time and again, cops have done this with drugs, guns, poisons, and images of children. You see, you buy the stuff and you remain anonymous. But you still have to get your contraband delivered, and that's when the cops can grab you. There are ethical concerns, though. The cops can't oversell their stuff. They can't say, hey, take these 500 pills, but I've got some great cocaine, too, if you want that. That's called entrapment. They can't say, take a 1,000 pills and I'll throw in a gun. That's just not ethical. Then you've got these images of kids that float around the dark web. There's been a lot of controversy regarding the FBI putting out their own images and setting up what's called a honeypot. The problem is, once those images are out, they can be copied and spread all over the web. But you can avoid in-person delivery and avoid an undercover agent, right? Well, if you think other means of storing your gear are safe, stay tuned. Number three, the Postal Service. You don't have to be set up to have the cops knocking at your door. A huge amount of contraband is seized before it even gets to the buyer. The post office can intercept a package, find a few ounces of cocaine, and then they can get in touch with the police. The police can then start an investigation, and while the buyer might not get arrested because the package never arrived, the cops in the past have watched post office videos and have been able to arrest the sender of the package or packages. In other cases, they weren't able to find the seller, so police allowed the post office to deliver the package in what they call the controlled delivery. As soon as you pick it up, they swoop in on you. It's unlikely police will ever get involved if someone is buying, say, one single pill of something. But if the package is big enough, there's always a risk. Sometimes, though, you could get busted, and it's not even your fault. Number two, a dealer's data. One outstanding case of someone being caught selling drugs on the dark web was a kid in Germany who was arrested by police in 2015. This 20-year-old guy, who still lived with his mom, was found with a whopping 320 kilograms of drugs in his bedroom. Yeah, you heard that right. 
He pretty much ran a drug empire from his bedroom and sold drugs from the dark web to people in Germany and in other countries all over the world. He would usually use a P.O. box, not a house or an apartment number, and the person who picked the package was never the person's name on the package. If the person was ever caught picking up the drugs, he or she would say, hey, that's not my name. The thing is, the kid still needed to pick up the drugs. 320 kilos is quite a bit of powder and pills, and it was when he was picking up one of his packages that the cops got him. But guess what? When the cops looked on this kid's hard drive, they found all the names and emails of all the people he'd been selling to. That included guys just buying for personal use, which was not much use to the cops, but it also included bulk buyers who were selling on the streets of Germany and beyond. Someone on the dark web managed to get this kid's profile and leave a message. That message read, dealers run for your lives. That's the thing with the dark web. If someone else gets caught, your information might be on their computer. That kid became a millionaire very fast, but now he's in prison and will be for possibly another decade. The problem is, no sooner than the kid was behind bars, someone else had taken over his dark web domain. Sometimes, though, you can get busted without even visiting the dark web. Number one, advertising. The last way people are caught is when they advertise their dark web marketplace on the very visible normal web that we all use. Yeah, they use the normal web to direct people to the dark web. It's just a little silly, but Ross Ulbricht, the guy that ran the notorious Silk Road marketplace, did just that. He ran ads on a Bitcoin web forum for the Silk Road, and those ads could be traced back to him. For such a smart guy, he definitely missed several big brain moments. Despite their crimes, many men and women with symmetrical faces and without distinguishing characteristics never make the FBI's most wanted. They must have marks, scars, tattoos, or stand out in some other way in order to make the cut. Otherwise, they won't be identified. Fortunately, quite a few murderers have something other than their twisted minds to set them apart. From bludgeoning, shooting, biting, and burning victims, these are the worst from the FBI's list. Let's see what exactly they did in this episode of the Infographics Show. Most violent... Catch over 70 live game broadcasts, alternate broadcast streams, and original content with Suns Live. The all-new streaming platform now available to fans across Arizona. Annual subscriptions cost just $109.99. Sign up today at live.suns.com. Get an unlimited phone plan starting at $80 per month for your family on Google Fi Wireless. Enjoy unlimited data calls and texts with hotspot tethering and smartwatch connectivity included. There's never been a better time to make the switch to Google Fi Wireless. Right. Of the app.